What would I say to somebody who was thinking of doing life uni? I would say come prepared to learn a lot in unconventional ways and meet people that will journey with you at the same pace. If you're a fan of the Tent Talks podcast, then you or someone you know might be interested in Life Uni. Life Uni is a course that I have become involved in over the last year or so, and it is one of the most exciting things I've done for a long time. You will learn things that you didn't think you needed to learn and stuff that will tie into your everyday life. The Life Uni course takes young people between the ages of 18 to 25 and offers them a whole life discipleship program. We combine following the way of Jesus with life skills such as money management, conflict resolution, working off the land, nutrition, health and other great topics. We eat together, we play together, and we even work together because the course includes options for internships, job shadowing, and volunteer opportunities for businesses and charities in the area. The course happens in the south of England, near Brighton. It begins at the end of September and runs for eight weeks, and registration is open now. Just go to lifeuni.co.uk for any more information you need. I've been telling my mum, I've been teaching my mum about a lot of the stuff that we've learned and she wishes that she had learned that when she was younger. Life Uni also offers open courses for anyone of any age or stage. These day-long seminars look at similar life skill subjects combined with following the way of Jesus. I would say if you want to invest into your future self, come to Life Uni. Come with an open heart and an open mind. Go to lifeuni.co.uk for more information. Welcome fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. All right, Eve Poole in the tent today. Now, Eve is somebody who every time I meet her, I like her more and more. So I, I feel like we started as me being an audience member in one of your talks. And now I hope, I dare say, we're friends. I hope we're friends. Definitely. And we're colleagues. We're working on a project together. And I was trying to figure out how to introduce Eve Poole. And I realized I think Eve Poole could probably introduce Eve Poole better than I could. Because there's so many things that you're doing, Eve. So tell us, when you're at like a dinner party and somebody turns to you and they ask that awkward question like so what do you do give us the line what do you say to people how do you introduce yourself I guess I now say um I write books I teach leadership and I run things I think that's where it has come down to what sort of Um, things have you run (laughs) well I've just finished a couple of jobs I was chairman of the board of governors at Gordonston school up in the north of Scotland And I also rejoiced in the title of the third church estates commissioner, uh, which is one of these ancient titles from some legislation in the 1880s, but it's part of the Church of England's architecture. So I was one of the board in the church commissioners for England who have the portfolio, which is about nine billion, I think, at the moment. Um, And the third commissioner has the portfolio for the bishops and the cathedrals and for pastoral organisations. So I did a a three-year term there introducing a new cathedrals measure um, and sorting out bishops houses and closing churches and uh, you know a whole load of other kind of administrative things that come along with the role. But managing a nine billion pound portfolio. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, the first commissioner does the lion's share of that, um, okay. and they sort of face towards the city, if you like. The second commissioner, who's always an MP, a uh, kind of backbencher in the ruling party, um, faces off to Parliament to answer questions to the Church of England there. And the third commissioner is mainly an internal role, running all these kinds of random statutory things that have accrued to the commissioners over the years. So I, I run right. lots of committees and uh, spend a load of money um, on keeping the church afloat. So um, really interesting, very wide ranging role. Where are you calling in from right now? Where? Because your accent doesn't sound like uh, where you're actually living. So I'm based in Edinburgh in Scotland. I was born and brought up in St Andrews on the East Coast. Okay. Um, my mum was technically Scottish, although her family was English. And my okay. dad was technically English, although his granny was Scottish. Right. Um, so I was brought up in a fairly mongrel uh, kind of environment, which meant that um, I was very good at speaking Scots in the playground and English at home. And right. so... Uh, if you hear me on Thought for the Day on Radio Scotland, I'm more Scottish than I am when I'm on the radio down south. Oh, brilliant. Okay. <laughs> a lot of our listeners will be uh, North American, right? Canadian and American. So they, they might not notice all the different uh, accent dif differences that happen. But do you find that's often true? Like when you're with a certain group that you just do naturally adjust to them or do you do this on purpose yeah well I did um I did six months in Connecticut on an ESU scholarship at a okay. high school called Westminster that was really funny because when I came back from that and went straight to Durham for my first degree people thought I was American rather than Scottish right um because I'd still picked up quite a lot of kind of American nomenclature and phraseology so right. I, I think a lot of it is about the jargon and it's certainly a skill I learned I used to work for Deloitte Consulting in the city and I think what you learn when you have to go into organizations you know different ones every week and become a native really quickly is that's all about the patois so i've got very good at picking up jargon so i think that's probably more telling than the accent but yeah it's a bit confusing i think people are never quite sure how to place me so because we talked about you just mentioned deloitte so you're you've you're actually coming to all this from a business background right so because what i want to talk with you about is the shit we taught at business school which was a piece that you wrote for the Yoho Journals, which listeners of Tent will be familiar. We've started to produce or, or some interviews based on Yoho Journals. We had David Benjamin Blower, Richard Beck and I have been talking a little bit about black magic in white houses, but you have published this one on the shit we taught at business school. So first of all, tell me, where was this business school? Before we talk about the shit, where was the business school? <laughs> I, I do have a slightly odd past because my first degree was in theology and I worked for the church commissioners as a graduate. And then I went off to Edinburgh to do an MBA and worked for Deloitte Consulting, doing change management in the city, largely for financial services organisations, both in the UK and abroad. Um, and it was after that that I was sensing there was something a bit broken about the system and I wasn't quite sure what to do about that. And all the stuff about ethics in the boardroom and social responsibility wasn't really doing it for me so I decided I had to go and do a PhD in theology and capitalism to really try and I guess understand you know from a systemic point of view what was really going on so I had a mortgage by then so to finance it I went to work for Ashridge Business School which was founded in the 50s as a response post-war to places like Harvard who were tooling up at the time and there wasn't really anything in the UK that would help industry and middle managers in industry really kind of get professionally organized it was this very interesting charity um, set up by some conservative politicians who had kind of got a hold of this house that had been a college of citizenship for, you know, people like Churchill and all those. 
and uh, this, this building was sort of mouldering away, having been hospital in the Second World War. So they decided to open it as the UK's first business school. Uh, it was a management college in those days. So it has this very interesting history. It's a beautiful grade one listed building, it used to be a monastery. Uh, Elizabeth I was brought up there and was arrested and taken to the tower from there. You know, all that stuff. So a really fascinating place to be teaching leadership in. And so I was taken on as one of the very few females teaching leadership in those days, largely to blokes who were rather older than me, and did my PhD part-time at Cambridge while I was teaching there. So I ended up working there about 10, 10 years or so full-time, and then when I was ramping up writing all the books after the doctorate, um, I went part-time as an associate to have children and do other stuff. So since I had the children, I've ended up doing the leadership roles I mentioned at, at Gordonston and um, at the Church Commissioners, which has been a good way to cash out the kind of theoretical experience you get teaching and writing about it. So yeah, my professional background is a mixture of, of business and church, really. I, theology seems to be the red thread running through a lot of this. You, you started as a theologian, as an undergraduate. What, what was it that, that moved you into management business world? Was it was this a deliberate thing or was this just a, an accident? Yeah, thing? it was very deliberate. I had done my theology degree, which I'd loved. And I guess I graduated in 93 when there weren't very many jobs in Britain. And I didn't like these big folders in the careers library, you know, that said sort of Shell and Marks and Spencers and Lloyd's TSB on them. They kind of freaked me out, these big corporations. And um, there was a very thin volume called Miscellaneous. And there was an advert for a kind of graduate scheme of the church commissioners in it. And I had lots of pictures of archbishops and cricket and, you know, all that. And I thought, oh, how very civilised that looks. <laughs> so I pushed off there. Uh, but yeah. while I was there, I did a really, it's a sort of civil service type job. You do fast stream stuff and you move around doing policy roles. And I ended up being staffed as secretariat on this really extraordinary project where the Church of England had decided to totally reorganise its senior structures, all its governance. There'd been a thing called the Turnbull Report, which was about kind of amalgamating all of the big beasts, the Church Commission, the General Synod, you know, all the Archbishop staffs, the Pensions Board, you know, the whole caboodle to try and shove them into one kind of management board. So in trying to implement that, um, I came up against all of these massive problems that the church has with business. Because even though there are stacks of businesses who do these sort of mergers and things before lunch every day, the church was buggered if it was going to speak to any of them about it, you know, because obviously they're mammon, we're God and never the twain shall meet. And I just felt so frustrated because my poor old theology degree, I could not press it into more service. There was nothing in there that was helping me at all. So I thought, well, I'm going to push off to business school and learn how you actually do these things properly so that I'm in a position to help. So that was a really nice thing about going back in as third church states commissioner, um, because I actually was tooled up this time to do some proper work. And then what happens on the other side? So when you're working for the church, you're thinking, oh, my theology isn't helping with management here. But then what happened when you were with Deloitte and you were just you were just in the management world and the consulting world? What was happening to your theology? Well, then? it was kind of odd. I mean, there was some stuff that drove me a bit crackers. So for instance, in Deloitte, you have these little CVs that you send out when you're pitching for work and they kind of pick the consultants they like. And uh, they'd edited mine because obviously my employer previous to them had been the church commissioners for England and they thought clients would freak out and think I was going to try and proselytize. So they changed that to quasi-government, quasi-governmental, non-something financial institution, something. Wow. <laughs> 
charitable institution, which was incredibly long and took up all the word count, but, um, you know, avoided the word church. So I thought that kind of thing was a bit silly, but I, it was it was evident, particularly in banking. You know, banking is such a dichotomy. You've either got the biggest load of kind of alpha attending evangelicals, you know, ever, or you've got a load of people who just think, well, why would I trust your judgment? Because you believe in fairies. So it was a really interesting environment to be in. But actually, I saw a lot more better behaviour in the city than I'd ever seen in the church. And that really gave me quite a lot of pause for thought, because I just felt that there was an awful lot of stuff that we should be learning from each other across those divides that just wasn't being accessed because everybody would hide behind their barriers. You know, you believe in fairies and, you know, you're all going to hell in a handcart. And that just seemed to be a, a, a bit silly. So what was what was better that you saw? Was it the, the personal relationships or... Well, there's better. a massive confusion. I mean, anyone that's ever worked in, in the church sector and in, in charities will know there's a, a willful confusion between motivation and competence. So there is an idea that if you're really vocational and you love God or you love a, a, a cause of some kind, okay. then that should be enough. Oh, but we all okay. know that even the most motivated person might actually just be really rubbish. Yeah. Um, and of course... You, you you kind of airbrush that out if you're in a faith context because if someone really believes in Jesus then then presumably Jesus will provide and how dare we criticize their, their competence so I saw that in the city possibly they were a bit harsher and if you were incompetent you didn't survive for very long right and of course they then have to pay you for your immortal soul to try and drive up any sense of vocation that is lacking so there's a really interesting difference in approach to the psychological contract but there was something quite interesting about, about the use of talent in the commercial world. I think they're much better at it. They're much better at being quite jealous of talent and trying to husband it better than I think we are in the voluntary sector and particularly in churches. And, and in my theology, I think, you know, we'd be made beautifully by God and, and we ought to try and become more beautiful, not kind of hide behind incompetence as a sort of badge of honour, which is what I saw far too much in the church, I think. I've often had experience working in churchy circles either churches or you know colleges connected to like in, institutions connected to churchy things where the idea it's like there's a job to do and your name's at the top of the list so you do that job like it's almost there isn't a I have often noticed there wasn't a sense of like you this is what you're good at we're going to do something that you're good at or you're going to we're going to put you into this position it was more like this job needs doing okay we'll assign this person to this job this person to this job and it's almost just like going down the list and I didn't really feel, I've often been in the situation not feeling like I've been or... or well tasked. Yeah, it yeah. feels to me that it's a, I, I think the problem about all these parables is they get hijacked. The Good Samaritan gets used for all kinds of nonsense. The parable of the talents just gets used to justify a whole load of investment strategies. And actually, it's not really about that anyway, but it's particularly about what is your gifting and how do we really try and rejoice in that? And how do we improve it, develop it, bring it out? Um, and, and I think it's quite shocking that those of us in the trade who ought to be experts at this are so casual about it because not everyone is good at everything. Uh, and actually, I, I think you can bless God better by trying to deploy people correctly into into their callings, I think. Ironically, the church is more sees humans as resources than human yeah. resource departments do. In Free resource as well. And of course, you don't you don't appreciate what you don't pay for. Yeah, right, right. Tell us about the the other the business school then like so you're teaching mbas to british up and coming people what was the shit that you were teaching well i think um 
I came in to teach leadership. And so we did a lot of kind of exec ed, um, kind of short-term courses where people come in for a week or whatever. But because I had a background in consulting, I'd done quite a lot of organizational work. Right from the word go, I taught on the MBA and I taught everything from HR, organizational behavior through to ethics and consulting skills and strategy because it was quite an interesting MBA. Again, because of the heritage of the outfit, it was generally people later on in their careers. So rather than the kind of classic North American model of people being in their kind of early 20s, it was mainly people in their late 30s, early 40s who were mid-career, often who wanted to go and um, found their own business and needed the kind of, you know, one of the things you would do as your kind of dissertation was your business plan for whatever it was that you were trying to set up. And it was highly international. Um, and so it was really quite an interesting bunch of people to be working with. But like all MBAs, you know, it is a kind of operationalized process. There's a curriculum that you have to get through and you're kind of accredited by a body that awards the degrees and you've got to tick a load of boxes. And that hadn't really been my background. I mean, my dad was a teacher and I'd gone through a load of you know, degrees, as you know, but I, I just felt that wasn't really about pedagogy and learning. And it also wasn't about real life. And I was getting increasingly cross that the stuff that I was hearing talked about was just hogwash. And uh, the reason I wrote Toxic Assumptions was, which was one of the books I wrote, was because particularly what I discovered through doing my PhD in theology and capitalism was that there was just a load of assumptions that had crept in that were routinely taught in business schools that were just absolute shit. And so the Toxic Assumptions book was picking seven of the kind of most egregious ones and just going through them one by one and saying, why are we really still going back to this kind of neocon, neo-liberal Chicago school stuff when it's been massively discredited? But the problem is, if we teach it in business schools and we still teach it in high school, that's what turns into public policy because the people writing public policy, that's as far as they've gone in education. So even if the sophisticated economics departments are doing behavioral economics and doing Kate Rayworth and doing a whole lot of other stuff, that doesn't translate unless the really kind of mass market uh, economics education has got its shit together. So the reason of writing a sort of mass market book on it was to try and demystify economics. Because again, as a woman writing, you know, it's never a good idea for a woman to write about theology, but to also write about economics as a woman is a disaster because who the hell are you? <laughs> Eve's chosen um, the two hardest places <laughs> to be a woman and she's like, I got to do both of those at the same time. <laughs> um, but I was just fed up of being told to go away and leave it to the grown-ups. And I thought, well, yeah. this is too important for all of us. We all need to tool up so that we can ask really difficult questions about the way we're being hoodwinked in policy, in law, um, into sort of behaviours and tropes that just, ruinous what is the chicago school you mentioned that earlier so this this seems to be the the imaginative thought world that is setting a lot of yeah well it's a very it's a very lazy bit of terminology and i should apologize as well as explain explain it um there is a school of free market economic thinking which broadly would argue that the best way to have flourishing markets is for everyone to stand well back and just let them get on with it. Because the second you start interfering by having state solutions or state ownership or anything kind of quasi-communist, everything grinds to a halt. So the most kind of pure way of describing that and teaching it was pioneered in the Chicago School of Economics. And a lot of the famous kind of Nobel Prize winning um, people came out of that kind of particular school. So the Chicago School is used as a kind of shorthand for free market thinking. At the other end of the spectrum, you have 
those who would generally call themselves communists of some kind who would argue that the last thing you want to do is trust the markets and the only thing you ought to trust is a state that's been properly um you know elected by the proletariat or whatever uh, i'm crap at communism so forgive me if i'm getting that this all wrong but it's sort of a spectrum at one end you have no rules on the other end you have absolutely stacks rules um, there is always a rule of law because, you know, contracts, even in a free market economy, wouldn't hold up if you didn't have that. Um, but the free marketeers would say that's all you need. Whereas people who would think that you need a more communitarian ethic would say the state has to own things in order to stop privateering of, of, the, of the type that you see in the kind of really out of control free market states. But what were some of the toxic? So thinking of the Chicago school, then what are some of the toxic assumptions? Should we just. I'd yeah, so I can, I can kind of whiz through them. One of the key ones is, is the invisible hand. So the idea that the free marketers have is that if people just get on with it, um, maximising their own utility, then the invisible hand will kind of make that right. And the invisible hand was a concept dreamt up by Adam Smith. He actually used it in an essay he wrote on celestial bodies and things. And he, he described it as a kind of balm for the soul. So he knew he was using it in a fairly naughty fashion. Um, and it has been absolutely leapt upon. And of course, when he was writing in Edinburgh in the 1700s, people would have heard Invisible Hand and assumed God because yeah. he was writing a Judeo-Christian context. Is that just his hand-waving? Is this his Doctor Who timey-wimey stuff? I mean, is he just, is he kind of like, I can't explain it, so we're just going to go, ooh. Well, exactly. And the thing is, it looks right because there is a lot of self-organisation. You see swarming, um, you know, you see the starlings doing their murmurations. You see the shoaling in fish and yeah, right. you know, lots of beautiful, beautiful self-organizing. So we think, well, that that must be it then. You know, if you Organically just let that happen, then right. we must stand well back because you know, someone, God or you know, Darwin has got a plan and, and things will emerge that are beautiful. But of course, if you look at the detail of the kind of flocking and the shoaling, you know, they shoal straight into the mouths of a shark and they flock straight into the jet engine. So the teleology isn't there. There might be some self-organization where these messages of supply and demand do kind of net out in some way, but that doesn't automatically mean that they'll be going to a good end. And in fact, we know <laughs> categorically from what's happening in the world that that is not a safe assumption. So on the back of that, this idea you maximize your own utility. Utility is a really terrible concept as another toxic assumption because utility for what? And if you just say, we've got to leave everyone to just do their own thing, then of course you get selfish behavior and of course you get people who would argue from a kind of human rights point of view, they should be allowed to do absolutely anything they could. The thing about utility is it's just, a, again, one of these kinds of arguments like the invisible hand, which are all about letting the powerful take over. Um, because what happens in a self-organizing system, such as a market, is that it's only as good as its messages of supply and demand. And if all those messages are being put in by the rich and powerful, then those who are dispossessed and have no voice uh, have no market. Uh, and again, we see that fairly, fairly obviously globally. And it also means that if you get hooked on utility, you get hooked on utilitarianism. So the ethic of the market is all about greatest good for the greatest number. Um, and again, we, we've just seen, we always feel worried about that. You know, it kind of stacks up intellectually, but we always feel a bit horrified by it. And of course, during COVID in Britain, we felt that hugely viscerally because they, they decided that they were just going to let all the disabled and, and, and old people die. You know, that, the whole beginning strategy about herd immunity was about utilitarianism and saying, well, don't worry, COVID's a bit nasty, but it only preys on the weak and we can do without them. And that made us all feel really 
disgusted um, because utilitarianism isn't a normal ethic for most people. It's just one ethic amongst others. So those were a couple. And then, of course, that whole thing is fueled by this idea of competition um, and that if people are allowed to maximize their own utility and they compete against other people to do that, then the, the quality in the market will ratchet up. And that that's true to a degree, but it also bakes in a huge amount of duplication of effort. And as we know, waste, because if everyone is doing reinventing the wheel all the time, then they're all using natural resources. They're all using all kinds of other resources. And we know from maths that an absolute zero sum game idea of competition will not actually maximize outcomes. We know that from John Nash and his equilibrium theory. We know that from, from a whole load of game theory that actually the best way to maximize outcomes is to share information. So while I'm not saying you should never compete, um, I think we should cooperate much more than we ever compete. So for instance, a lot of the bigger brands where they're allowed to, because a lot of geographies because of antitrust legislation won't let you, have already started collaborating on back office and manufacturing things because the only thing they really need to compete on is their brand proposition. Um, you know, a lot of cars are actually made in the same few factories um, because actually it's the, it's the kind of what you do with them and how you position them that is really the thing that adds the value to the consumer. What happens in environments where kind of raw competition is king like where where well it's really tricky so unilever got absolutely clobbered in britain um big massive sort of um consumer goods outfit has loads of sort of household brands they do a lot of detergent and they'd figured out um paul pullman who was their chief exec at the time was a massive sort of green warrior and he'd been really trying to reinvent their strategy to be more reliable more um you know sort of sensible about the environment and they had done this really interesting project where they were trying to figure out you know, we, we assume that with detergent, you need quite a lot of it and you need hot water. So, of course, that means that you have to buy a lot of it, which is bulky. And there's a lot of chemicals in there. And you need hot water, which a lot of communities don't have access to. So they've done this project to figure out how could they make um, the stuff more concentrated and how could they make it susceptible to cold water in order to activate it chemically rather than needing hot water. So they called together all their kind of competitors and, and to tell them about this, to say, you know, we just want you to know that we're changing the way we kind of do our packaging. So the supply chain stuff in terms of how we share vans and things will change. And, you know, we didn't want you to be surprised by this. We wanted to explain and tell you why we're doing it. And the competition authority clapped on a massive fine for kind of collusion, price fixing, you know, anti-competitive behavior because they'd had the temerity to, to tell their competitors. Now, of course, their mistake was not to take the regulator along to the meeting. If they'd done that, it would have been fine. So because it was that kind of smoke-filled rooms idea from the wealth of nations, it felt like it was something dodgy. But, you know, that kind of thing happens all the time. And it's just barking mad because, of course, they should have all met together to say we've got a massive problem with how detergents are spoiling, you know, land and, and sea. And how do we sort that out? So, and I mean, I know in North America, antitrust legislation is really, really tough. But I do just think it's an utter, utter waste of resource and time, all that duplication. The other toxic assumptions are things like um, pricing. So um, if you do your economics, you do a lot of stuff about equilibrium theory and, and curves of supply and demand meeting netting out at the market price. Um, and so the market price has now assumed this kind of idea of kind of science that it is the rational, the best, the only, the just price, because it's where supply meets demand. Um, it's just the invisible hand again. Yeah, invisible hand and self-organizing yeah. in markets and all that. And of course, that's very alluring, but it's absolute codswallop because then you get you know, million pound handbags and absolute nonsense in, in happening in pricing. And of course, the scholastics and all the religious tradition around this is about just price looking at the cost of something 
and the labor and all that kind of thing and then adding on what would be a respectable profit margin and something that that was what the argument was about was what would be a normal kind of profit margin that wouldn't be taking the mickey and i think of course that meant we were quite obsessed theologically with what's what's the kind of you know, so the usury debate, you know, what, what is the kind of cost of money? What's the, you know, what would a reasonable ceiling be? And that was reflected in legislation around, um, you know, pricing around things like loans and, and usury and interest payments. But of course, what it meant was that over time, we forgot all of that. And market pricing means we have forgotten the actual cost of things. So all the enthusiasm recently about trying to count the cost of things like environmental despoilation and all the kind of enthusiasm for what they call externalities, which is how do you price in all of the societal and planetary cost of things. And, you know, if, if you actually do the calculations around what does it cost to get some gas in your gas station, the, the price of the petrol or gasoline is incredibly low. But when you add back in the cost of transport, the, the environmental cost, the cost of policing, the cost of government subsidies, the wars that have to be fought about it, all of a sudden it becomes totally unaffordable. The problem about market pricing is it airbrushes out that entire conversation about the actual cost. So you buy a dress that's five bucks and actually it's not five bucks, it's costing right. a lot more than that. And, and, and companies don't have to, it doesn't even show up on the books, there's no place for that, yeah. right? Nobody has to show the cost of Sierra Leonean, <laughs> like rebel warlords. Yeah, well, the mega brands, of course, have outsourced all that so that they can claim clean hands. And and we know from particularly some of the scandals that have been around collapsing factories and stuff that that doesn't really work. Um, and so it, it, it's a conversation that needs to be had. And I think a lot of companies, to be fair to them, are now having that conversation. But the toxic assumption of market pricing has been bailing that um, for too long, I think. So we need to do a bit of catch up on. And also, a lot of us are good at paying extra. You know, with, with fair trade, we pay extra because we know that money is going to the right place. And some of us will buy locally, even though it'd be cheaper in the supermarket, because we know that money stays local and that's important to us. Um, so just to finish up on the, on the seven, um, there's a couple more. One of the really pernicious ones is this idea of agency theory, which in classic economic terms is the kind of Marxist war between the owners of capital and the employees there's this idea that you know in classic economic thinking that they're not aligned because you've got the owners of capital who want to maximize their wealth and you've got employees who are sort of you know skivers and recalcitrant and stupid and need to be sort of coerced into behaving properly and because of that kind of theory there's been trade unions there's been hr and objective setting and scrutiny and you know counting keystrokes and videoing people and you know all that kind of um forward stuff about not being allowed to laugh or talk on the factory floor and, yeah, and amazon measuring how long how long you take to go to the loo and, yeah yeah all that yeah. stuff which you know we still hear about in in some sort of amazon and this derives from the from the stuff. basic assumption that employees and employers are at competition with each other at odds yeah and and i think this is based on a particularly unchristian view of humanity I mean the anthropology behind that is essentially Freudian and is about human recalcitrance and, and needing to be forced into good behaviors and when I wrote the book I mean there was there were a lot of good examples around the world of enlightened approaches towards employees that showed the benefit of treating people like real people but COVID has again brought that home to us because loads of people had to work from home and agency theory would suggest 
that was a disaster because we would all just spent all day in bed watching telly and, you know, randomly vandalising our communities. But in fact, what happened was everyone worked even harder and found time to go and, you know, collect prescriptions for the granny next door and make cakes for the neighbours who were struggling. So <laughs> we know even more than we ever did that people are not naturally awful and they don't need to be forced into weird behaviours and that actually if you as we talked about that whole idea about talent if you understand people and what their gifting is um they'll often want to work for you um and not need to be exploited and and treated badly so agency theory then is linked to another toxic assumption about shareholder value so you'll have heard that kind of freeman thing about the business of business is business and you know, again, that Chicago school thinking, which is that's all we should be concerned with. Shareholder value. And so what the agency theory thing, yeah, exactly. And the agency theory, theory thing means that we're so worried about execs not behaving properly that we've decided they ought to be aligned with the shareholders by giving stock options. And so the only concern, it seems to me, of chief execs these days is about maximising shareholder return because that's the metric and it also means they personally get very rich and of course the shareholder is is being used as a, a very santa claus figure because when you I, I think the idea is some sort of nice old man and you're keeping him in socks because he very kindly put all his great granny's money into your business to allow you to found in the first place but and he's carefully observing everything and he takes an interest and every day he checks exactly, how the company and he reads all your newsletters yeah. and he sort of checks yeah, yeah. you out in the wall street times every day or whatever but i mean we know that that's absolute hogwash because with with automated trading in particular the average time for which a share is now held as about 11 seconds or something. So if you were to visualize an AGM, the faces would be blipping in and out because you, you don't have a stable set of shareholders you can kind of check in with and, and, and give them value. You're, you're dealing with a whole load of infinitesimal sub-second transactions by funds all around the world who are just trying to make a margin. So I, I think the shareholder, when you particularly look at the American law on this, they have no rights. I mean, they can basically be invited to an AGM. They can normally attend one, although during the shareholder spring, they're all being booted out and they can sell their share. But actually, they don't really have very many rights in law. Um, so as a stakeholder, they're a pretty weak one. And the stakeholders of you know, the actual employees and people in the supply chain and all that stuff are probably much more real. Um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between stakeholder and shareholder? So a shareholder is a stock a stockholder in North American parlance who would actually own, technically, legally own um, a, a percentage of the business through the number of shares that they hold, the, the stocks they have. So they have that very minor legal status. A stakeholder is just anyone who has an interest. So they might be an employee, they might be a supplier, they might be somebody who lives next door, they might be the government, um, they might be representatives from the communities that are buying the, the goods or services. Um, so, so shareholder versus stakeholder is normally about trying to point out that if all you're doing is looking at shareholder value, that's an incredibly narrow lens and is only looking at one stakeholder and actually probably the weakest and, and least relevant stakeholder, but easiest to count because you can see the stock tickers every day. And you can you can see half an hour to 20 minutes, you know, every, you know, company websites have that on ticking away. So you can immediately get that kind of real time analysis of how you're doing, which is illusory, but very compelling and, you know, fun to watch. So <laughs> well, it's the metric of convenience. Yeah. It is, like you said, yeah. it's the only one that we can really. It's hard to measure all the stakeholders in the fast fashion business. Well, exactly. The, and that's why it's very bewildering. And so a lot of people just don't don't bother with it because it's too complex. And then again, that's one of the problems in general around 
these toxic assumptions is because a lot of things are quite hard to ma- to measure and they're very hard to manage so it's much easier to zero in on the very few things that are susceptible to that and then we pretend if we can't measure it easily that it doesn't yeah, exist yeah. when in fact it's the most real yeah the, the un- unmeasurable stuff out there are the most real things. yeah yeah no that's absolutely right and i think that's absolutely true for businesses too i think the very final one i think i've covered all of my toxic assumptions the very final one is about ownership models which i think is interesting to those of us who who have got into community organizing and social enterprises because in the uk 98 percent of all businesses registered are limited liability either companies or partnerships and i imagine that'd be broadly similar in the states and in in canada because limited liability was a brilliant invention you know in the days when you were building railroads and you know, huge infrastructure projects, it kind of made sense because otherwise nobody would have put their capital into it. But as a kind of model of choice, it sort of means that there's no risk you can't take because you'll never be liable for anything. And uh, it it leads to some pretty poor decision-making at board level um, and a massive- The shareholders can invest and they never are going to lose- Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, there's no downside because you're not liable. The the liability is limited. So, you know, and and these days also with insurance, any any liability that is there is insured. So companies can get away quite literally with murder. So why is this toxic? Toxic implies poisonous poison so why why is limited liability poison well it is toxic because it is it's normalizing a lack of responsibility yeah right, right um and enshrining that in law and in regulation so i when i left ashridge to have my children i still had to to finish off some pieces of work so as a charity they were obliged to contract with entities um in order to use their public you know, their funding properly. So I had to set myself up over the weekend into a company that could then be hired on Monday to finish off these pieces of work. And so I had a look around and I couldn't find, there's, there's lots of devices in this country where you could be a community interest thing. There's lots of, you know, be cool, you blah, blah, blah things, but th- there wasn't any way you could do that readily. You know, you needed to find the one accountancy firm that specialized in that and pay over the odds for it and um, particularly trying to do that in a hurry you can set up a limited liability entity you know with one click you just buy a shell company and it's easy to get all the kind of regulatory accountancy stuff on the back of it because it's the model it's a monopoly model Um, so it's toxic because it's normalizing something that's basically unhealthy it's toxic because it's putting the same model onto all enterprises uh, which just is not right and when you feed it back into all of the other ones it's generating an approach towards enterprises that means that you you perpetuate these myths of the kind of difference between the owners and the workers and all these kinds of things because you know employee ownership models for instance we know are really robust and resilient and much more participative and you know there's a whole load of other ways to organize that would probably be more fitting for the organization the enterprise you're trying to organize but at the moment it's just impossible to set up anything other than a limited liability enterprise so you're just creating stuff right from the start which is it has irresponsibility baked in yeah. like it has i have no connection to my stakeholders no responsibility for them that's by law enshrined into your company yeah yeah where does sexism come up in all this you talked about being a a woman in the business world and in the theology world is the misogyny and sexism or is that part of where is that built into some of these toxic assumptions 
Well, when I talked about competition, I talked about the poor maths. And of course, the more pernicious thing behind that is the sexism. So competition theory is all about winning and losing. And it's all about grabbing market share and, you know, becoming number one and all that. And it's based on lots of reinforcing theories about leadership and strategy, which are based on, on battles and the old mirrors for princes literature, which is all about nation states and Clausewitz on war and, you know, Machiavelli and all these guys. And, you know, that appeals to chaps who've been, you know, brought up in that tradition where they've had soldiers on carpets and they've gone off, you know, to fight in wars and things because that's what their families have always done. So it feels really normal to inherit that kind of thought process um, for men. And more particularly under pressure, we know there's a difference between how men and women respond to threat. So what most of us have heard of is a thing called fight or flight, which is, is what we think happens under pressure, which is that, you know, something happens that is disastrous or shocking or saber-toothed tiger or whatever. You know, you have this adrenaline cortisol that's produced and you hear the roaring in your ears and you, we have those very physical reactions that allow us either to fight off the saber-toothed tiger or exit stage left. But when Shelley Taylor at UCLA did some studies, uh, which were published, I think, in the year 2000 with her colleagues, she discovered that all those fight or flight theories were based on male test results. There had been some women in the original test, but their, their data hadn't made sense. So they decided it was the moon or, you know, hormones or something, and they kind of just edited them out. Um, but when they took seriously female results, they noticed that the original studies had had assumed testosterone in the mix of the kind of adrenaline cortisol but actually when you look at what happens in female physiology it's oxytocin that is the relevant actor and oxytocin is the kind of breastfeeding drug nurturing all that kind of stuff that is produced and it drives what what taylor and co would uh, rather sweetly call a tend and befriend response so the idea behind this is that when we're all in caves you know, women were having periods and having children and, you know, looking after the old people and stuff. So, and they were physically less strong than the men. So actually it made sense for the men to rush about doing the same tooth tigers and all that stuff. And the women would stay at home and they'd look after everyone and they'd keep the fire burning and make all the food. That also meant they were telling the stories, they were chatting, they were, you know, whizzing over to the cave next door to say, watch out the same tooth tiger on the loose and all that. And, and so this kind of very stereotypical idea that the women pick up the phone and go, oh, you know, guess what's happened to me? It is true and even logically very helpful um, and so tend and befriend uh, suggests that under pressure women will tend to communicate to reach out to pay attention to relationship and it's less about zero-sum games and winner and loser and much more about trying to identify solution sets which we know again from game theory is, is probably economically and mathematically speaking a better way of, of dealing with pressure so it's ironic that actually in the boardrooms women would be better at dealing with pressure than men and I, I once met a, a lady, Jane Angardia, who had been running Virgin Money during the 2008 crisis. And she told me a very telling story, which is that um, she was the only female head of a retail bank in the UK. And all of her, you know, people around the, the table from all the other banks when they did meet together, the Adam Swift and to prove, I'm sure, uh, were all men. And um, she got told off by them because her instinct when everything went horribly wrong was to phone the regulator and say, it's all gone horribly wrong, let's talk. And the other's like, how dare you? How dare you break rags and talk to the regulator? <laughs> but that was a really classic tenant and friend response, which is, got a problem, let's chat.
Um, and actually all that kind of button down the hatches, cards close to your chest, poker face, you know, all that stuff, which is about zero sum game. It is not a very efficient way to deal with pressure. So um, of course, if you think about competition as a theory, men will feel that's normal because their lived experience is under pressure they feel that sense of zero-sum game and they must prevail because that's what their body is telling them, you know, from, from caveman days. So they think all that kind of trotting around, giving away the secrets of, you know, your organisation is terribly foolish and really risky because in a battle to the death, it would be. Um, but very few of these day-to-day -day humdrum disasters in financial markets and in organisations are actually terminal. And actually, if you have zero-sum games every day of your life, you have no customers left you've got no colleagues left you've got no competitors left you've got no market it's all actually about relationship building and so women ought to be better at it than men uh, by definition there is a lot of misogyny I think because men and women misunderstand each other certainly as a leader I found that when I have gone off with my tandem befriending it's been perceived as as embarrassingly gauche and probably because I'm a woman and I'm a bit younger than people normally are in my position. And so that kind of gallant knight thing kicks in and the men always try and kind of apologize for you and hide it and kind of rescue because it's all this really embarrassing. And actually you're deploying a much superior strategy. Yeah, you have to right. kind of explain it. <laughs> oh, wow. Are these toxic assumptions, are they endemic? Can you have capitalism or market economies without these assumptions? Oh, yes. That's why I wrote the book, actually, to redeem capitalism, because okay. I do feel it's the best shot we've got. I just feel that it is being held back by these terrible tent pegs that are just are not helping it. So if you think about competition, I'm sure there are lots of arenas in which we should still compete. But imagine how releasing it would be if we could collaborate, you know, across the world solving problems together. You know, it would release the market to move even faster to solve problems. Um, you know, there's all this stuff where, where when you start looking at these things about pricing, if we understood better what our impacts really were, we would be working harder to solve them because we wouldn't be able to buy cheap dresses. We would, you know, we would need to, you know, understand more about what we're paying for and why. And that would make us curious about the supply chain and, and fix problems quicker. So it feels like we would be able to move faster if we could just release ourselves from these rather silly you know, the, the great thing about assumptions is they've all served their time. It's a bit, I've got this really ghastly medical implement, which is a, a very sophisticated 1920s um, scarificator, which was a bloodletting tool. And it's like a kind of library stamp, but with razor blades in it. Because until, you know, even the 1920s, if you had a headache and you went to the doctor, they would often prescribe bloodletting to, to take the pressure off. Um, and it got really sophisticated. And you have these amazing gadgets where you could kind of do levers and stuff and then bang into your wrist to get all the blood out. But, you know, isn't it better that we just have a headache pill these days? Um, because what science tends to do is when the rules change, it, it, it changes. Uh, but economics is stuck in the past with these rules that probably did make sense invisible hand probably did make sense when everybody believed in god and everyone thought there was a plan and things like shareholder value probably made sense when we did have a few sleepy old men who owned these companies and on all these other things you know they've had, it's just they've had their day really yeah past right. their sell by day it is still true though isn't it eve that you must you cannot serve god and mammon you must hate one and love the other how can you be a capitalist and hate mammon if you're a follower of jesus well, Jesus also said that you should use the ways of unrighteous mammon. Okay. Um, and again, I think when you are thinking about gifting and talent, 
I think it's wasteful to just write off a whole load of human ingenuity because you're not quite sure you understand it and it might smell bad. That seems to be very... So you're you're you know, seeing this as more, not just about money, but about human ingenuity. Like you're seeing capitalism as a mechanism for human problem solving. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about the remotest place you've ever visited, you know, you pitch up there with your camera and your backpack and there's always a little child who wants to sell you something. Right. you know or, or you know swap something yeah. it's just human nature bartering you know if you've got more of something than the other person has and they need it you tend to swap you know kids do that in the playground yeah. the whole time so markets are nothing more nothing less than um either a sophisticated or fairly basic way of kind of leveling things out um, the whole point about supply and demand is it's about messages saying i've got too many beans this month you know i need a dress and 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 the great thing about very sophisticated markets like eBay and Amazon is they make that very efficient because they match people up from all over the world who've got yeah. these odd surfeits of something that somebody else randomly needs. And so this is the problem with the, the grey markets and the black markets is they often aren't joined up enough to be efficient, which means they're more expensive and more dangerous, therefore, for people to be to be in. But it's only when you start putting a load of paraphernalia around it and calling it mammon and getting a nicks in a twist that it becomes a massive problem. And, and so what is mammon then? What is it? Like... What is it that, that we're supposed to guard our hearts against or not to worship then? Well, I think, again, all these shorthands are about warning you against a kind of orientation. And it is absolutely true that money has a way of making you think you don't need anything else. Right. And very, very rich people don't see that there are any problems they can't solve with money. Right. It becomes the um, only solution. Yeah, and, and so, you know, and, and there's some really interesting studies about ethics and emotional intelligence, which diminishes the richer you get, because you don't need to be nice to people, you don't need to have any skills, you just need to have a load of money so you pay them off, and, you know, it's all, it's all about money, so you don't need to particularly worry about right or wrong, because, because money can make everything go away, and I think the richer you get, the, the more you may think you can depend on yourself, so for me, it's about the tractor beam, that consumerism and being rich makes you think you're self-sufficient and that you can therefore make your own end and you can not only through money but through consumerism curate perfection um, and become everything uh, and your teleology becomes in incredibly earthbound and incredibly about you optimizing and I wouldn't say God doesn't want that but God wants that in the context of God so the idea is, is the, the sort of idols and whatever it is, who are you worshipping and who are you doing this for? So if you're only doing it because you want to be perfect, that's really not the point, because God didn't make you to be randomly perfect off in the corner on your own. God made you to want to come home to God. And that smuggles in a teleology, which is about something much, much bigger than you could ever achieve on your own. Uh, you know, the self-justification or other good stuff in theology. So, so it feels to me that mammon isn't necessarily a kind of, you know, if we're going to pin the tail on the donkey, I'm not quite sure where you'd go with that. You could write what they have written books on, haven't they? But, but for me, I think it is a reminder about not nailing your colour to the wrong mast. And it's about not stopping with mammon. Um, it's about seeing that even mammon reports to God. So <laughs> no matter how brilliant you might be within that, there's, there's a bigger reality beyond it that you need to be working towards in terms of alignment. Are you seeing, have you ever, have you ever seen this done right? I mean, where are you seeing people kind of getting that relationship? Well, I mean, Paul Pullman at Unilever was was one of my poster okay. children for this before he retired, because he was trying really, really hard to turn a tanker and to say, 
you know, the point of this was never about the shareholders and about the money. It is about our customers and about all our suppliers and everyone that we're involved with. And it is about the reason we were founded, which was to make affordable, good quality products that ordinary people could buy. And John Lewis uh, in the UK, which is a big employee-owned partnership, you know, they try very hard to balance being a brilliant enterprise with also taking care of people. There are, there are lots of companies who try very hard even within this environment to do really well. It's just they're constantly kicking up against a system which seems to be designed for, you know, a smaller vision. And, and so, you know, it, interestingly at Ashage, we were involved in a, a, an enterprise which had been set up by businesses with the UN because they felt that governments were so behind on this agenda they wanted to get ahead because government policy just wasn't moving fast enough. And so it was the companies themselves that were setting up all these initiatives about, you know, how do we kind of understand more about the supply chain? How do we understand how we integrate internationally around standards of health and safety and employment and citizenship and all these things? And, and so there are a lot of initiatives in business where people know there are no customers on a dead planet. And they also know that being horrid to people just means they don't like your brand and they won't buy it again. So yeah. uh, actually, Capitalism is busy fixing itself, um, but ironically, you know, a lot of people would think government is the way you fix it, and it's government that's preventing the fixing by upholding these kinds of bits of law and regulation that are just terribly old hat. Are you seeing, are MBAs changing? No, it's utterly depressing. In this country, you have A-levels that you do when you're 18, and the economics A-level has hardly changed. So when you go off to university, the basic courses you do at undergraduate level are, are all this old stuff. There, there have been loads of initiatives set up in the UK and I think in America too about unlearning economics and trying to um, integrate different perspectives and Kate Rayworth's work on donut economics is, is becoming very important. But again, trying to bake that into kind of economics 101 is the real problem because it's a bit late. If kids have already learned all this hogwash and they've learned it to kind of a-level standard where they're kind of getting straight A's to get into Oxbridge or whatever, it's very hard for them to unlearn it um, if the rot set in around these toxic assumptions. So it is hard because, of course, busy academics are so busy wanting to do their whizzy research, they don't want to have to redesign the whole curriculum and they don't want to have to kind of come up with a new curriculum. They're not incentivized to do that. Um, so it's quite hard to figure out where, where the push would come from to really transform the way economics is taught. Yeah. What would you recommend to somebody who's interested in this kind of stuff where could we go for more information do you have a few books or one-stop shops of resources yeah i mean my website has got a couple of talks i've given on this uh, if you like to do visual stuff and obviously the the capitalism of toxic assumptions book which i published with bloomsbury is readily available and there's a, an audible uh, audiobook on that as well i've also written a few articles that summarize all this stuff which there should be links for on the website too and then I would very much recommend Kate Rayworth's work, her Donut Economics resources. She's got a lot of stuff on there, which really donut helps Economics. Okay. Yeah, Donut Economics, yeah. Okay. Um, she, she, her book came out a couple of years after mine, and I, I now just routinely tell people just to read her book. I mean, I love my book, and I, I think I did a good job. Oh, Eve, you're tending and befriending but... <laughs> again. You should be a competition. She's the guru. You should destroy the competition. <laughs> you're tending and befriending. What's going on? <laughs> Brilliant. Kate Raworth, Donut Economics, and Eve Poole, all the resources, which I'll put up on the show notes as well, that people can find that. But the book, The, the, the Seven Toxic Assumptions, is a, is a brilliant one. And you, you also do stuff on leadership? 
leader smithing what's leader smithing yeah so for me they're the same project because when I was at Ashridge I was coaching a lot of very senior people who would kind of well sadly actually one of the most common reactions in these private coaching sessions for people to cry and talk about meaning and purpose and why they were doing what they were doing and an awful lot of people felt that things weren't quite right in the system and they would try very hard to do the right things but they were kind of prevented from doing the right things by law and HR and senior management and policy and shareholders and all this kind of stuff and so you know that that was always the argument is the system is broken so I, I wrote Toxic Assumptions to say well the system is broken but we can change it um, and then they would still say, oh, but I'll get sacked, I'm too, I don't have the courage and I don't know what to do. So I, I wrote Leader Smithing to try and tool leaders up for the challenge, which is that we all need to get busy changing the systems around us because there are systems, and you know, they're mirrors of who we are. And if we want them to be better, we need to change and change them. So Leader Smithing was a recognition that certainly when I came into Ashridge, I was teaching all these old blokes and, you know, they'd look at me askance because I'm quite short um I look quite young and they can be like you know this is like our goddaughter trying to tell us what to do and I don't really get that and what authority does she have so like a lot of girls in that situation I did my homework and got a load of data behind me all the stuff on leadership is very old hat you know you go into a room a workshop and you have one flip chart that has management one that has leadership and management has these boring words like budgets and rules and you know leadership has all these sexy words like vision and strategy and all that and uh, and it always feels like you know management's a bit boring leadership's yeah. dead sexy but it wasn't very really clear what the activities were and then you would do a game where you talk about leaders you admire and people would talk about Nelson Mandela and you know and you're kind of like well I hope none of us would ever have to be imprisoned for years and you know be freedom fighters and all that um and an awful lot of the leaders that get name checked are military and political leaders, um, sometimes religious leaders like Mahatma Gandhi or um, Mother Teresa, but very, very rarely business leaders. You know, occasionally people will talk about, you know, Musk and, you know, all those people. But it was quite hard to figure out who, who was there there who were role models for ordinary people who didn't want to be elected king or prime minister and have to go through several wars to show their mettle. Um, and also I'd met so many leaders who had imposter syndrome, who felt they were about to get found out and they were just hoping that day would be staved off if they just could kind of bluff their way through till lunchtime. And um, it didn't feel neat. All these biographies, I mean, again, it's a giveaway. You go to the leadership section of any bookstore, it's all biographies of blokes yeah, 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 who are yeah, retrospectively yeah. saying, oh, I was frightfully strategic. And you're like, well, you probably didn't feel like that at the time. Because most leaders, leadership only happens when everything's gone horribly wrong and everyone's looking at you and expecting you to sort it out and you feel like you're about to be found out and feeling a bit sick and want to just ring your mum so that felt to me a bit like if you if you're working on a potter's wheel and you've got all this clay and it's kind of going everywhere and you have to kind of chuck it off and start again it felt messy it felt like craft and so leadersmithing is my way of talking about the fact I think it is a lifelong journey about trying to achieve mastery through craft practices and that actually instantly makes it much more doable for ordinary people because, you know, if you're talking about doing a table, you need to know how to cut the wood, you need to glue the wood or get the corners right, you need to how to polish it. You know, all those things individually aren't very hard, but to, to create an extraordinary table that will last for thousands of years is a big deal. And, you know, masters would be brilliant at that kind of thing. And everyone had to serve apprenticeships to learn that trade. And actually for years in the West, you know, 300 years, I think it was, you couldn't get a job unless you'd been an apprentice. You had to do your seven long years and then you had to do an apprentice piece to show you were ready to join the guild. 
And that is what I think leadership feels like. It's about watching and learning. It's about doing beautiful things in miniature, like these apprentice pieces to show that you can run a perfect meeting. You can have a really difficult conversation with someone whose performance isn't right. You can do a brilliant presentation in front of scary shareholders. You know, you can make a really difficult decision under fire. You know, all these things, which in and of themselves aren't difficult, but to do them in a beautifully scalable, coordinated way and under pressure is the thing that is, you know, artistic. So leadersmithing was a way of unpacking the craft of leadership and describing the kind of component parts so that everybody can not only explain what they've already got in their kit bag, but set about acquiring the kinds of templates and tools they need to be able to show mastery for any job they're going for in the future. Oh, that's brilliant. Dr. Eve Poole, I'm so glad that you joined us. This is really good. And I look forward to working with you in the future as well. But thank you for now. <laughs> Until then, uh, Eve, go well in Scotland. Go well up there in the wintry climes of uh, the northern UK. And I will continue in my way down here in, in the warm, sunny south. Thank you. It's been really great to talk to you. Oh, it's been nice to have you here. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchin for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.